Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that simply everything has its own history, like teeth, birds, luck, or the spine. Or it could be edge, dredge, and sledge. <laughs> sledge. I think the sledge is very important coming up to Christmas. I think our Christmas episode should be about sledges, sledging. Do you reckon everyone who listens to our podcast thinks that these things have to rhyme now? I think they're expecting it, Sam. And also, they'll be expecting that we follow the links in our minds as we come across them and explain how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of cats, our feline friends, is in fact all about cruelty, superstition, empire, the devil and the French Revolution? Huh. Did you know that? No. Did you know that the history of teeth is all about identity? I did, actually, because I wrote all about it. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a brilliant chapter on teeth in our book on... Vikings. Oh, no, Vikings. Vikings. I, I, did, I, did honestly, I did honestly write it. And, and what's interesting there is about the filing of teeth. That's true. That's true. Um, the yeah. man sitting opposite me is the button of history. He brings it all together. He oh. fastens it. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's Professor James Daybell. Hello, everyone. The man sitting opposite me is the Giorgio Armani of fashion history. It's the wonderful, famous historical adventurer and truly fashionable man about town, mm. Dr Sam Willis. You're looking very natty today. Well, I'm wearing shorts and it's freezing. Shorts and orange trainers. Thank you. Orange trainers from Glasgow. If you I haven't remember. worked it out, guys, we're doing clothing, clothes. We are. And this was inspired by an interview with the lovely Georgina Radcliffe at Chalk Valley History Festival. Georgina is part of the Tastes Through Time Living History Group. Um, we're going to have a little interview with her uh, and her mother uh, later on in the show. I am, as you say, wearing orange trainers. Uh, they're very cool orange trainers, which, as you say, I bought in Glasgow with you when yes. we were there on our tour. We were talking at the Glasgow Literary Festival. Um, I'm going to be talking about a painting of Doge Leonardo Loredan um, from the early 16th century by Giovanni Bellini. And have you noticed that his headgear is exactly the same colour as my trainers? I have. <laughs> I have now that I've seen it. <laughs> but what I wanted to do, I have all sorts of stuff to talk about with clothing... Um, it is, it's, it's a really fascinating form of history. But what I wanted to do was a brainstorm yeah. about the history of clothing. Sure. Uh, which we haven't done for a while. So I wanted to start off by thinking about how we start thinking about clothes. And we can think about them in, as you always do, across time. And we can think about clothes, how they've changed. We can think about this in terms of the, what the French annals historians, the social and cultural historians, would call the lingerie of clothing. So we can think about how they've changed and how they haven't changed across time. So the way in which they have changed from something that is very practical, 
that is there to keep you warm to something that is actually associated with fashion, design, style and luxury. Mm. We can think of clothes in terms of their practicality. What were they worn for? Different functions, different kinds of clothing, workwear, home, domestic, school, clothes, uniform. We can think about clothes as markers of social and cultural status, age, class, gender, religion, nationality, how that's changed. We can think about clothes from the perspective of manufacture. We can think about trade, technologies, factories. We can think about the cloth industry. We can think about supply chains. We can think about buying and selling of clothes, new clothes, second-hand market, the mending of clothes. There's also the notion about fashion style design. We can think about museums such as the V&A, the Bath Fashion Museum, which record all this sort of fashionability of it. We can think about the wearing of clothes, the meaning, fashions, changing over time, styles. We can think about sumptuary laws, which I'm going to talk about. We can think about protocols of clothing, the history of the tie, for example, when to wear a tie, when not to wear a tie, what to do with a tie, to garrote people. We can also think about the life cycle of clothes. You can think about laundry, clothes being worn out. You can think about... Um, mending. mending, recycling, the second-hand market of clothes. Mm. We can think about distinct styles and how do you age things, how do you date things through clothing. When we watch films from the 80s, there is a very distinct 80s fashion sense, which is basically um, power shoulders for, for women. All sorts of distinctive and, periods as well. You know, and Yeah, and we can see that back in the past. So I, love, I love it when you go rampage. back in the past and you're looking at something like the 1770s and we might have a very broad concept of people what people wore in the 18th century. Yes. Know. But actually, fashion's changed as quickly as it yep, did absolutely. 10 years ago, 15 absolutely. years ago. So 1770s might have had a very distinctive style to 1760s or oh, 1750s. I, I think you'll find that's a, that's a 1763 pair of gloves that you're wearing there. <laughs> Yes, exactly. So yeah. people who are experts in their field could probably date, you know, date paintings according to the kind of fashion that was yeah, being really displayed. precisely. Yeah. Yes. And our knowledge of it is only going to improve and increase. Yes. That's what's quite exciting about it. become better at it. Yeah. So there we are. There's a quick sort of romp around the history of clothing. You've, exha sure you've missed, exhausted me. I'm sure I've missed all sorts of things out. The tie, though, I think is fascinating. I did something at a local school in Plymouth last week at the Notre Dame uh, uh, Catholic Girls' School there, and they had some really talented... Uh, kids from the local area, they were about 14 years old, and I set them off, I told them all about histories of the unexpected, broke them up into four groups, and said, right, come up with your own ideas, and I want you to brainstorm this, and think about how you write different histories of it. And this one group of boys from the grammar school came up with the idea of ties, and we started thinking about how you might think about that in relation to all manner of things, you know, when would you wear a tie? What would, you know, and and relating it to school uniform. They're schoolboys, they're there in their ties. But how do you then think about it beyond that? How do you connect it to politics? The school tie, you know, you connect it to the current cabinet in the United Kingdom and the Eton school tie. Um, hmm. And when, when, you, when you don't wear a tie, you can also think about it in politics and the way in which David Cameron, when he was on the campaign trail, actually took his tie off unbuttoned his shirt, rolled up his sleeves because he wanted to be a man of the people. So you I can think about ties in all sorts of interesting ways. I saw a historian being interviewed on TV uh, very recently and he had his tie undone 
and looked incredibly relaxed and was filmed in a pub and it was really refreshing. <laughs> it was um, it was such a, a step away from the way that historians particularly are represented often on telly when you have an expert doing a talking head thing. Um, this guy looked terrible but it was so much more engaging and convincing because his appearance was somehow not had nothing to do with what what he was there for uh, and particularly the way people are represented on television, um, seems to be very susceptible to that. Yes. Do you wear ties much? I, I've got a bit of an issue with ties. I, I refuse to wear ties. I hate them. I love a tie, mm. uh, but I have stopped wearing them. I think it must be your malign emperor. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is. But, but I've, stopped I've stopped wearing them at work. Yeah. Because I always used to sort of feel that I would, I would wear a tie to sort of look more formal and or authoritative at work and I've sort of stepped that down. Okay. When yeah. I lived in the United States and I wanted to I wanted to I actually wanted to write an extraordinary amount which I did in 3 years I wrote so much. Um I would get formally dressed on a Saturday morning and go into campus onto campus into my office and sit there nobody was around but I would sit at my desk wearing a tie huh. because it put me in the right sort yeah. of frame of mind. No, I do it. I do like that. I want to take you to the American Revolution, the 1770s, and a key period when the Americans were about to ally themselves with the French. Um, they did this because the French had a big navy and the, the addition of French sea power to the war was going to dramatically change things uh, in, in their favour. But the problem with it was, is the sort of widely accepted view of French people in the 1770s who were clearly seen as ridiculous by the English and the Americans, primarily because of their clothes. Um, and the French looked very, very strange to anyone who wasn't a Frenchman or anyone who wasn't enthralled to French fashion. Um, and, you know, their appearance alone was enough to cause some fairly serious sniggering. We know that their hairstyles were particularly ridiculous, but the men, for example, they'd carry a cocked hat, but they'd never wear one. Their coats were cut away to such an extent that they only met at chest level and severely restricted any sort of movement at all. There's a wonderful quote here. I've no more use of my arms than an Egyptian mummy. It was a satirical comment in a play. Um, and the coats themselves were elaborately decorated with buttons or badges of enormous size and variety. Some were embroidered, enamelled with topographical, political, even theatrical scenes, or ornamented with paintings under glass, insects, mineral, sorry, minerals, objects of natural history, comic riddles, portraits of the Twelve Caesars. We know that they were featured on, um, on a French costume. Um, all sorts of extraordinary things. Uh, and that made me think about, you know, the the way that people in some moments in history have chosen to not just accept the clothing that they're wearing as it is, but to augment it, mm. um, to mm. embellish it. Whether it so here it looks like the French are wearing badges, like you remember in the eighties, people would have like a denim jacket with loads yes. of badges on. Yep. On whether they were badges uh, to do with often to do with some form of disobedience, some form of challenge to authority or associating yourself with, with, with liking a band or something. Um, and it also made me think about the, the Tudors as well. So we, we do a bit of thing on Tudor hats in our, yeah. in our show and we know that the, the upper classes wore hats that were very similar to the lower classes or the citizens and the yeomanry, but the big difference is they were made out of more expensive material, but they were embellished with stuff. Yes. They the, added things to them. As we, as I say in the show, they could be pimped. They could pimped be pimped. Pimped your Tudor hat. Yeah, so with um, 
Badges, brooches, yep. really important. So uh, the Queen often wears brooches, doesn't she? Um, yep. A big part of the crown jewels yep. are brooches. And so it's augmenting something, not just w whether it's a badge for identity, but something that actually screams money and power. Yes. Ostrich feathers, where do you get your yes. ostrich from? Why have you got an ostrich? Peacock feathers. Yep. You know, it's a remarkable thing to have the grounds to have a peacock, to have a peacock feather, to have it in your hat. So it's about, it's about personalising your dress. So it's about social, your own social identity. Yeah. But in many, in many periods, uh, there was a, an attempt by the state to govern what people would wear. Because what you wanted to do is you wanted people to fit into a particular social hierarchy. And throughout medieval and early modern periods, there are sumptuary laws. And sumptuary laws would decree precisely what people should wear um, according to their age, according to their sex and according to their social status. And we see this in 1574 in England with the statutes of apparel uh, that are passed by Elizabeth I. And I'll just read you a little extract here from the enforcing of these statutes of apparel. The excess of apparel and the superfluity of unnecessary foreign wares thereto belonging now of late years is grown by sufferance to such an extremity that the manifest decay of the whole realm generally is like to follow by bringing into the realm such superfluities as of silks, cloth of gold, silver, and other most vain devices of so great cost for the quantity thereof, as of necessary necessity the monies and treasure of the realm is and must be yearly conveyed out of the same to answer the said excess, but also particularly the wasting and undoing of a great number of young gentlemen, otherwise serviceable, and others seeking by show of apparel to be esteemed as gentlemen who are lured by the vain show of those things." the excess of apparel and the superfluity of unnecessary foreign wares thereto belonging now of late years is grown by sufferance to such an extremity that the manifest decay of the whole realm generally is like to follow. So the idea is there are two things going on here. One is that they don't want an influx of extravagant foreign cloth because basically that will take resource out of the country. The other thing is that what they don't want to do is to encourage people to become obsessed with fashion, that they are expending all sorts of, all sorts of money on it. The other, thing, the other important point to say here is that they seek to control people. They want to actually put them in particular boxes. And there's a very good book by uh, Peter Stallybrass and, and Rosalind Jones called Clothing uh, and the Art of Memory. And what they, one of the central arguments that they put forward there is that clothing is part of memory and it's how people think about themselves within society. Of course, there are all sort of ways in which people manipulate it and sort of turn it upside down and everything. But what they are seeking to do is have a degree of order. And this works in particular with women. So what you don't want is, if you read the conduct materials about early modern women, they do not... Um, they're, they're, they are encouraged not to be painting themselves up and being too sort of obsessed with, with what they look like and also also dressing themselves up as, as gentlewomen. And if you have a look at these statutes of apparel, they, they argue that women should obey fairly strict, um, strict protocols of dress. None shall wear 
any cloth of gold, tissue, nor fur of sables, except duchesses, marquises, and countesses in their gowns, kirtles, partlets and sleeves, cloth of gold, silver, tinseled satin, silk or cloth mixed or embroidered with gold or silver or pearls, saving silk mixed with gold or silver in linings, velvet, embroidery or lace of gold or silver, except all degrees mentioned above, the wives of knights of the garter and or the privy council, the ladies and gentlewomen of the privy chamber and bedchamber and maids of honour. Enamelled chains, buttons, aglets and borders, except the degrees before mentioned. So it lays out all these sort of things that you should and shouldn't wear. It's all about social control, clothing. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, when you're allowed to wear things. Know your place. Are you allowed to wear shorts? Well, maybe that's one of the reasons. I, I like to wear shorts all year. I've yeah. actually challenged myself to wear shorts every day all year. I know. And this you, year. You wear, you've worn them on stage in yeah. almost in winter. In winter. I, I'm, I, th I think the, um, the key is going to be the, is a, a good woolly sock. Yes. James. But, you know, people who, people who defy these sumptuary laws are punished. Mm. They're fined. They are even imprisoned. For example, in 1565, a man called Richard Walwyn was detained for wearing, I quote, a very monstrous and outrageous great pair of hose. Right. But apparently he stuffed these trousers far too much, which is something he shouldn't have done. I was in trouble for it. That's amazing. Isn't it? Yep. It's very difficult it was, to police it, clothing. Particularly hats as well, though. It was, it was illegal to wear... To, it was illegal not to wear your hat yes. in the Tudor time, wasn't yes. it? It actually made it illegal. Yes. 1571... Um, you had to wear a wool hat if you were above the age of six years old, yeah. um, except if you were a, a maid gentlewoman or gentlewoman. And if you didn't, you would be fined three shillings and fourpence, which was more than the average weekly wage of the unskilled labourer. And part of this new law was to support the English wool industry, the same way that the, that the sumptuary laws of 1574 were to stop money pouring out of the country for foreign commodities, this is actually to support the English wool industry. And because it's so linked with identity, you can have the same principle, you can have clothing and laws linked with identity and persecution. So yes. you have um, Jews being forced to wear badges yes, yes. during the Second World War. Yeah, absolutely. And I bet there are other examples of that. We recently did a gig at uh, the wonderful St Mary's Church in Limington. Oh, that was... This is Thomas <laughs> Woolsey's parish church. Yeah, and it actually survives. Yes. As does the house. Yes. Uh, um, who Next door, where he yes. lived. So any um, Thomas Woolsey fans out there, please make your way to Limington in Somerset. Yes, it's near had, Ilchester. They've had a really... They've had real fun with a Heritage Lottery Fund grant to do all sorts of restoration work with the church and they've put in some interpretation panels uh, which tell you the story of it. And Woolsey apparently got put in the stocks for being drunk and disordered. Wearing the wrong clothes. Probably wearing the wrong clothes. <laughs> but, being but stick being, on his being, clothes. Being slightly riotous. Ah. Um, and then the person who put him in the stocks when Woolsey rose to prominence, uh, he made sure that that person who'd got him into trouble... Uh, entered jail himself for six years. <laughs> yeah. the, the, the history of revenge. Crossing Wolsey is not a brilliant plan, no, is it? No. no. If you're, if you're strategising your way no. to survive the it's, Tudor period. It's never good to cross one of Henry VIII's chief ministers. We are talking about this uh, because there are 
several effigies inside the church and there's they're very very old one of them is by is of sir richard giverney who built the chantry chapel and died in 1329 and beneath that is a smaller female figure there's also a double monument of a male and a female figure um, which are believed to be henry and matilda power great name and they date from the 1340s what is important about these is that they are depicted in their clothes so one of the things that we didn't talk about in your... I wouldn't describe it as a rant, but more of a... Um, uh, a journey. A, a journey through the history of clothes that we began this with. Yes. We didn't talk about how you study clothes. So I'm just going to talk about the effigy of Richard Giverney. And what's important about it is that he's depicted with the most exquisite detail of his armour. And it used to be painted as well. And it's generally considered to be the most detailed example of armour of that date... Um, in existence, so the 1320s. Just I'll give you a description of him. He's lying down on his right-hand side. His face is turned upwards, which is unusual, but has been seen occasionally in the first half of the 14th century. There are similar effigies in the local stone, Ham Stone, um, in nearby churches. Now, what's important about this guy is that he wears an early version of a bassinet, a helmet, which is not secured to the male coif, the cap, but kept in place by a strap under the chin, which is attached to the bassinet by catrafoil mounts. He also wears considerable protection on his arms, with two pieces covering the upper arm, a single van brace, which is a forearm protector, protecting the forearm, and small cooters, um, which are protections at the elbows. His hands are encased in flamboyant, magical gauntlets. You know a good thing about gloves, but they were particularly lovely, the way they, they fold over his lap. Um, he's got a kind of curious twisted way that he's lying, but they've still managed to get his shield on and his shield is carried conventionally enough on the left arm. Um, another unusual aspect about this effigy is that the hands are not joined in prayer. Instead, the left hand is gripping a guige, a leather strap for hanging the shield on the shoulder or neck, and the right rests on a sword pommel. The gown splits over the thigh, revealing the hauberk, which is his chainmail shirt, uh, beneath the gambeson, which is the padded jacket below that. And all this is very, very clear. There are knee protectors, particularly, which were noticeably beautiful. They've got squared corners with sankful mountings for the securing straps as an elaborate cross-carved cross -carved in relief. Um, and then there's more detail on his lower legs. The knee greaves are there. Uh, the sabatons, which are the foot armour there, they cover the feet. Um, and the knight's head itself rests on a large helm, which is carved in beautiful detail. There's a very visible but rudimentary visor, probably hinged at the top with a decorative strip down the front. And the remnants of a crest can be seen on the top of the helm. So... There we are. It's worth going to just for this extraordinary depiction of a 14th century mount, uh, knight. And it, it really is like he's just crossed his feet and he's having a bit of a snooze in the corner of yeah. the church. It's, it's so powerful and so vivid. It, you expect him to just rise up and start chatting to you. Yeah. I think one of, the, one of the methodological issues here is about how you study clothing from former times, yeah. particularly where the items of clothing don't survive. So you can think about the pictorial representation of it you can think here the the way in which statues can be used to um to study the kinds of clothing that people would have would have worn if we think about the i want to link this now to a recent 
a current exhibition at Hampton Court, which is about Elizabeth's, Elizabeth I's dress. And it's about the discovery of a dress. Because the thing with Elizabeth, when she died, she had about 1,900 dresses, none of which survive until now. Because in the Norfolk Parish Church of Backton, the curator at Hampton Court, one of their curators, Ellery Lynn, uh, who is writing a book at the moment on court dress, discovered, by chance, a surviving example of Elizabeth's dress, which had been used as an altar cloth. Now, this was actually very common for the Tudor period, that wealthy women who were patrons of local churches, one of the things they would do to support the churches is that they would give them their elaborate dresses that they no longer wanted to be turned into you know, cloths for the altar. And this cloth has been in the church for decades and since the early 1900s has in fact been in a glass case on the wall and the conditions of it have meant that it is beautifully preserved. Now... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The reason that it survives there is because it was thought to once have belonged to Blanche Parry, who was a very important woman at Elizabeth I's court. She was mother of the maids, a real close confidant of Elizabeth, and Elizabeth was known to give as gifts to her women of the bedchamber various of her dresses. And obviously Blanche Parry has gone and taken this back home to her parish church where there are funerary monuments of, of her and her husband there. Um, it's, it's her family church, so in, a, in effect she owned it. And this has been given there. Um, Ellery went down and... Uh, examined this and got up on the pews and started having a look at it and basically saw the beautiful embroidery work and then saw that it was made of cloth of, like it had silver cloth, it had beautiful sort of silver work and she started looking at some of the stitching patterns on it and said actually this is a, this is a dress and this kind of cloth, you heard what we were talking about the sumptuary laws earlier on, that kind of elaborate, vivid cloth would only belong to somebody of a kind of elevated status. And they then... So she thought, this is this is probably connected to the Elizabethan court. Um, they then brought it down 
and took it into the labs and the conservation team have spent over a thousand hours on it which is probably more time than it took to actually make the dress in the first place they've analyzed the cloth they've looked at particular examples of um they've looked at particular examples of dyes and this tells us there's blue indigo which comes from india there's a red dye that comes from mexico so already you've got this sort of extraordinary sort of trade route these rare colors coming into the country and then they started looking at the embroidery and it's very very similar to the rainbow portrait oh yeah the rainbow portrait which has which is with elizabeth's eyes and ears and so it's so remarkable what the rainbow portrait the is rainbow, the rainbow portrait is a an Elizabethan portrait of Queen Elizabeth. It's the one where she has uh, she has the rainbow in the background, a beautiful um, sort of red and orange dress, and on her dress are depicted little eyes and symbols of ears, which is supposed to be about uh, Elizabeth being in control and overseeing everything. And in this Hampton Court exhibition, the cloth, the altar cloth dress is basically being shown alongside the rainbow portrait which has been borrowed from Hatfield House. So it's an extraordinary way in which we can suddenly study the clothing of Elizabeth I. Well, the clothing and trade um, is really interesting. I'm just going to pick up on that very quickly. Have a look at this, this portrait here. This is Doge Leonardo Loredan. I said I was going to talk about him yes. by Giovanni Bellini. Uh, it's in the National Gallery. James what do you think of this? I'm thinking that uh, he's his the colour of his turban is a very similar <laughs> colour of your trainers. It is. Um, he he's wearing a, a high collar. He's wearing what looks like a an elaborate silk silver um, damask. Yeah, yeah. beautiful um, sort of cloak, um, and he's got what look like. Are they onions or conkers? They, or? they look a bit like hazelnuts, don't they? But hazelnuts. they're actually they're a special type of button um, linked oh. with a doge called gold buttons. Yes. It's an amazing nice. portrait. Um, have a look at it online. And what's really important is just how serene and calm he, he looks here. He's a representation of Venice itself, not just of a person, Venice known as the Serenissima. Um, and there he is. So he's wearing silk, important to do with rank and royalty, just like it was with the emperors of... Uh, Byzantium in, in the Byzantine Empire. Yes. Uh, we've got to think about where the silk came from, which is important. So bear in mind that the Chinese had a monopoly on all things made of silk for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And it wasn't until, um, it was a myth, but a, a Chinese princess who was going to marry uh, an important person in the far, far west of the country smuggled out some silkworms in her headdress. Uh, because she didn't want to exist in a part of the country where she couldn't have beautiful, beautiful clothes. And then in the 6th century as well, that's one, one of the reasons it got out. And another story is that two monks smuggled it out. Uh, and that is how the Persians and the, and the Byzantines managed to get hold of silk. So silk here is so important because it tells us about the role of the Venetian Empire in transporting the goods which came across the Silk Road, getting them across to Egypt. He's saying, not just I can have access to it, but I control all of the silk clothing in all of Europe. They had an absolute monopoly on the maritime transport of silk once it had come, come across to all of those thousands of miles of Asia. So it's a magnificent portrait, and it, it's, um, it's one that 
that opens up this world of international trade connections and, and symbolism with clothing as well. Excellent. Should we have that interview? Yes, let's. So this was um, this summer. Uh, I was at Chalk Valley wandering around and came across Georgina Radcliffe and her mother, uh, who are part of the Tastes Through Time uh, Living History Group. And in particular, they are interested in looking at food and clothing and particularly from a female point of view. And they are uh, a cross-period uh, living history group. Um, they did some uh, stuff on World War II, uh, but also I got them uh, when they were uh, Elizabethan, Jacobean uh, women, and they were basically telling people about how they would get up in the morning and get dressed. So, um, have a listen. Let's have a listen. I hope you enjoy it. OK, so it's James Daybell here again, and I am at Chalk Valley History Festival this year, which has been absolutely terrific. I'm taking more time out, and this time I'm talking to Georgina and Lindsay Ratcliffe, uh, who have been doing some amazing stuff around the history of fabric. So, guys, good to meet you. So tell me, tell me what you've been doing today. Um, well, today, um, so we've been um, doing a Stuart ladies' court dress, so a Stuart ladies' toilet, really. So we've been getting dressed. I was standing there in the middle of an arena, just in my shift, the hussy, and um, I got dressed sort of into sort of a fantastic silk court dress. Excellent, excellent. So tell me about tell me about how you got into this. How you got into this? So you, you're basically you're more or less in charge of the living history at yes. Chalk Valley. Yeah, so I'm um, Dave Allen, who runs um, the Living History. I'm his number two, so I organise all the, um, uh, or help organise all the Living History, but I've also been asked to do some interpretation this year as well, so a majority have been doing uh, World War II Land Army. And you're dressed in Land yes, Army kit. Yep. I've um, just, we've just written a book about World War II and about Land Army girls' pockets. Yes. And you have the pockets there. I do, Fantastic yeah. Fantastic to see them. So um, we've got that, and um, it's like my mum's been doing the uh, WVS as well most of the week. And then on um, well, Friday we did a talk in one of the marquees for our first time about uh, Tudor dyeing and cloth dyeing and things like this. <sighs> and how to get it from the sheep to the cloth. So talk to me about the history of fabric in terms of what you do. So in terms of the clothes that you were you were showing earlier on and also the cloth dyeing. Yes, yeah, so um, it's like at this time, sort of, you didn't have cotton or anything. You had your linen, wool and silk was the main staple, really. Um, Are we talking sort of Tudor, 16th yes. century? Yes, so this is 1620s. 1620s, so Jacobean. Yeah. Yep. Um, so we had all your underwear was sort of linen, so it was easy to wash. And that would have actually been washed quite frequently. So a lot of people think that they didn't wash it back in the day. Um, but they did. And the underwear and things would have been quite clean. Um, obviously, women didn't wear knickers apart from a certain time of the month. Yep. Yep. And um, other than that... Um, Which is quite extraordinary for women, and it means yeah. that they're quite exposed. Yeah, so they would have had like a bloomer style for the winter and things yep. to obviously keep it a bit warmer. Um, but they would have almost had like like the tarn bikinis you get now, that sort of yep. is the underwear they would wear. Um, There's a brilliant book by Laura Gowing called Common Bodies. Mm -hmm. Have you read it? Which, no, I which basically, it talks all about women. It, it's about women's bodies and women's clothing, and, and there's a great chapter on the materiality of how women would have dressed, yes. and you know, and, and, and it gives you a real insight into women of the period. Yeah, and it's like we had uh, sort of that as well as sort of the corset on top and everything else. Yep. So we showed, sort of showed the whole shebang, really. So Excellent. Excellent. Was, everyone was fascinated by it, especially I think we we're on. Um, sort of layer number seven or something. So it was uh, they were quite astonished. Sort of that was sort of almost like a summer wear, really. Yes. And um, 
I was sort of showing that I was rich sort of thing by the fact that I had a back lacing corset so I needed to hire someone to lace me into it. Um, also the style of the corset, the fact it's got a large point at the front as well meant I couldn't bend over to do my shoes up. Um, and so also, it's quite, quite restricted. Yes, yes. and um, also the fact it's black as well and silk um, showed off my, um, my status even more uh, because black as well sort of with the dyeing side of things um, to get black you need to keep dip dyeing in ammonia which is urine. Right. Um, only male urine works with dyeing. Female urine bleaches. Um, male urine um, does why it. Why is that? I did not know that. Apparently, why, why it's a bacterial that? reaction that happens. Okay. Um, which that, that is particularly in male urine. Yes, and females are too hormonal, apparently. Okay. Um, um, but apparently, there's a recipe book, literally a recipe book, which said that um, apparently the urine from a ten-year-old ginger boy is the best <laughs> for dyeing. Um, so I don't know how right. they asked that and right. how many ginger boys they had. Right. Um, and then, um, but yeah, so the, the fact you had to keep dip dyeing it and in ammonia and everything else, it showed that it, the, the ammonia would literally rot off your back. Right. So it would rot the cloth off your back. So um, if you were wearing this much black as I did in, um, today, it, yes. I'm literally showing off. <laughs> so the history of fabric then is a way, and studying this is a way of, of I suppose unpacking and, and interpreting for people yep. exactly what it was like to be a, a sort of well-born gentlewoman in the 1620s. Yeah. Where do you get your Where do you get your Where do you do your research? Where do you get your inspiration from? A lot of it is books. Um, obviously, you've got your portraits as well at this time yep. as well, um, and also effigies. Yes. So of you've got sort of the burial effigies as well. So that sort of is the main part, really. So you're looking at. Um, so you're looking at uh, Tudor portraits, so if you're interested in that, you might go to, or Tudor Stuart portraits, you might go to the National Portrait Gallery yeah. and, and look at those. Plenty of images online mm -hmm. for this. Um, the other thing, have you ever used inventories, like probate inventories? We have, yes. Really um, brilliant for it, aren't they? Those are the main ones that we've used. Um, so if we did a, an event at um, Stokesley Castle, right. where we did the whole Vernon family, and a lot of his documents are actually in the National Archives. Ah. And it was things like making, um, or he ordered uh, bre black breeches with gold lace and things like this and sort of started showing Brilliant. his... He was trying to get the Baron of Pow um, Powys yep. at the time, so he was trying to show off his wealth and things like this. So sort of all the documentation, the receipts that he had are all in the it's, National it's, Archives. It's, you, but, but it's so painstaking to sort of piece that yeah. all together. So if you go through household accounts, you can look through and itemise precisely what's yeah. being bought for and the you've household. you've got Shakespeare and Elizabeth I sort of giving yep. her handmaid and her second favourite pair of yeah. sleeves and things like that. I've got two or three books um, on household accounts, the Earls of Essex and yes. the household of Stoller and all this sort of thing. Yes, they're, they're, absolutely, they're absolutely brilliant. Do you, do you ever read a journal called Costume? Don't think if you so. haven't come across the no. journal Costume, Costume, if you, I think it's available online, it's certainly in the British Library, if you Google clothing in it, mm -hmm. uh, historians over the years have done brilliant studies of individuals clothing mm -hmm. working from these kinds of inventories what I'm fascinated in though is not necessarily the kind of domestic side of of clothing like that but actually how you can make it political and there's some great work done on using the uh, New Year's gift rolls mm -hmm. of Queen Elizabeth I and a brilliant historian who's analysed. So these were basically uh, lists of all the items that were given to Elizabeth. And one mm -hmm. of the things that she was really fond of was really rich, uh, extravagant clothing. And if you piece together, as a, as a fashion historian who knows how outfits work, if you, if you itemise 
the things that have been given to Elizabeth in one year, what this historian has been able to do is look at the networks of court women who've clubbed together mm -hmm. to actually give her matching outfits. And so what it's enabled them us to do as historians is to actually piece together the female power networks yeah. at court from clothing. Yes. So clothing isn't just a sort of domestic thing, it's also a highly politicised thing. Yeah. And the way that you dressed was so important. It's also got a lot of sim uh, symbolism in it as well, sort of depending on the pattern. It's like with the overgown of this one, it's got pomegranates on it, and pomegranates were sim um, symbolising uh, fertility yes. because of all the yes. seeds in it. Um, so you sort of, if you had things like that, you might assume that I was a new wife or something yes. like this to help aid fertility. Brilliant. So you're dressed, you've got amazing, you're both dressed in amazing period costumes. Do you, where do, where do you source them? Do you make them yourselves? Um, you... Mum's made all this, so she does, does a lot of the, um, especially the later years ones sort of thing. Your mother is a very talented lady. She is, yeah. Very talented. And you've been doing this for years, haven't you? 15 years now, 15 yeah. years, since you were 14? Yes, so... Goodness me. Yeah. This, this, this dress is about one of the first ones I made, or this purple. So Lindsay's saying that her dress is one of the is one of the first dresses that she's made. How how many years ago was that? Well, this was probably about twelve years ago now. Twelve but, years ago. Uh, it's it's been worn every summer since for varying amounts of time, sort of a month or something at a time. But uh, it's it's still holding up. It's never been hemmed, but material what's is. It ma what's it made it's of? It's wool. It's pure wool. It's pure wool. But because it's it's a pure wool and it's been felted, it's never been hemmed, so right. it hasn't frayed. The linen's frayed, but it comes to a point where it doesn't fray we, anymore. We did a Sam and I did a little pop-up show yesterday, and we asked the audience to call out. Uh, different um, topics that we should cover. One of the topics was mm. he hemline. Mm, yeah. How do you write a history of? How do you write a history of a hemline? Is sure. it the, the rise yeah. of the miniskirt? It is. Yeah. So I think um, it gets sort of spat around this time. Sort of thing. Obviously, it depends again to sort of whether you're lower class or upper class sort of thing. Because in some of these um, outfits and things, you've got nearly four meters of hemline. So I think just going, and like what period you're in as well? Yeah, what, what period you are. So if you're lower class, obviously you haven't got that much of a full skirt. If you're upper class, you've got a massively full skirt because again, you're showing off your wealth yes. by the amount of material yes. you've got. So it's going. It'll be quite a difficult one, especially. Down to as well. Yeah, so the lengths are different. So if you're lower class, you probably would have had it a couple of inches shorter because you'll be in the mud a lot more. Yes. Um, and then if you're upper class, if you're just going to be in a house most of the time, especially for court dress, it's going to be sort of more flowing through the hallways sort of thing rather than actually going out in the mud. But so you had things like patterns as well, which help you get you out in the mud. So who knew that there was so much packed into the history of dresses? Oh, yeah. People should look... You don't just look at dresses in a very simplistic way. Dresses are really interesting, complex documents or objects, if we oh, can definitely. think of them like that. Uh, Fabric so, so is really powerful. The amount that we've got staying over... And, like, they, they made do amend as well, sort of thing. They yes. did hand-me-downs and stuff. And it's, like, a lot of the things that I've seen where you've got different jackets and bodices and things where they've just been slightly adapted or they've had an extra panel put in and things like this to fit that person or to style it to the right fashion of the time. And um, so it's amazing, sort of, especially those surviving artefacts. That's brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Georgina. No and, problem. And Lindsay for meeting and talking with me. And I hope you have a fantastic rest of the festival. Thank brilliant. you. Thank you. One of the things that I think comes out of that is the way in which Georgina and her mother really bring uh, women's historic clothing to life. But earlier on in the show, you asked me to start 
thinking about how you'd go about studying clothes. Because yeah. we sort of rambled around it in, in sort of our usual anecdotal way. But I think where one of the interesting things is if we start thinking about this from the perspective, as all good historians should, from the sources themselves. And I have here a little guide, um, which is Museum Collections of Early Modern Dress and Textiles. You can find this at dressingtheearlymodern.com and it is a literally a list by town and by country of historical clothing museums. Mm. So we have the Victorian Albert Museum, the Fan Museum, the Geoffrey Museum, Kensington Palace, Kew Palace. In Bath, you've got the Fashion Museum. Oxford, you've got the Ashmolean Museum. You've got Hardwick Hall. You've got all sorts of, of stuff. I have done... I've, I've been to the Museum of London and worked with the brilliant Timothy Long, who's a curator of fashion there, um, who has been off to Leiden and learnt at the Fabric Textile Centre there how you start dating clothes. He was very excited when he came back because he had learnt a technique that enabled him to date these hats that he had within three years. And hats that they thought were very much older are in fact now early 17th century hats that would have worn, been worn by actors upon the stage. Another great source that you have is not only the collections themselves, but if you're thinking about printed sources, we have inventories. There are lists of wardrobes. If you have a look at the, this, I have in front of me here uh, something from Costume Journal, the journal Costume. Any of you interested in the history of fashion should definitely look this up. Uh, a list of the wardrobe, 1749, of the dress inventory of John Montague, second Duke of Montague. And at the back of it, it has a very detailed list of all the things that he would have had in his wardrobe, including a gold stuff coat and waistcoat, a black velvet coat lined with shag and gold buttons, blah, 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 blah. It goes on. You can also use household accounts to look at clothing. Another article that I came across was the clothes of Thomas and Peter, 1555 to 1559. We don't have an inventory for her, but what we have is very detailed accounts of her expenditure on clothing. So there's one item to Marjorie, for six burdens of rushes to strew the house, um, to the priest that married us, to the goldsmith for 15 buttons, white enamelled, um, the fashioning of the same buttons at 10 pence the piece, um, for making a kirtle of white satin, three shillings and four pence. So, I mean, it's amazing how, if you delve down into the sort of documentary history... Yeah, I, I love this list of museums. Um, many I've not heard of. The Bose Museum in Durham, Temple Museum in Leeds, uh, the Gallery of Costume in Manchester, the Potteries Museum in Stoke-on-Trent, Brighton and Hove Museum, the Embroiderers Guild Museum in York. And the one that really caught my eye was the Fan Museum. Brilliant. I, I've never you've been to the Fan Museum. I haven't been to the Hello, Fan Museum. Can you get in touch, please? It's devoted entirely to every aspect of fans and fan making. The museum is home to a collection of more than 3,500 predominantly antique fans from around the world, dating from the 11th century to the present day. Its collection and fans on loan from other collections are displayed in changing themed exhibitions in which fans are presented in a historical, sociological and economic context. That sounds fantastic. And there's also this list of other ones, um, other museums from uh, all over the world. 
uh, and I want to go to all of them. Including the Bata Shoe Museum in Toronto. Okay, Which yeah. You, next time you're in Toronto, make sure you check it out. Brilliant, brilliant history of shoes. And the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, my favourite museum. Um, well, that what is a, a romp through clothing. A little so. romp through clothing. I suspect we could do a lot more on clothing. Guys, I very much hope you enjoyed the episode. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes. Um, it just takes a matter of moments and it really makes a difference to our podcast and to how many people we can inspire about history. Um, do subscribe to us and tell all your friends. We're on Twitter. You can follow me at Dr. Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daber. And you can follow Histories of the Unexpected podcast on at Unexpected Pod. That's right. Uh, have a look on our website website historiesoftheunexpected.com primarily because we are currently on tour and we've got a number of great dates coming up and many more to add we're doing a little tour of great churches we are um, which is very exciting yeah so i'm seeing where we've got coming up we are going to be at the shelley theater in bournemouth on the 30th november uh, down to a lovely church the all saints church in oakhampton on the 6th of december and then we've got um, some wonderful things in the new year. The Kenneth Moore Theatre in London on the 30th of January and Crediton Arts Centre in Devon the day after. Uh, also, we have a Patreon account, Patreon forward slash histories of the unexpected, as many of you know. Um, I think we should record one of our episodes, leaving all the trains in, James, just to give a sense of how much <laughs> editing we have to do. I think we should. Yes. <laughs> I record, we record our podcast in the shed down the end of my garden, um, which is next to a train line, and we would really like to be able to afford to do it in a recording studio. Anything you can offer us on Patreon, just a couple of quid a month, will make all the difference in the long run and will allow us to get history to many more people. Uh, thank you all for listening, guys. See you soon. Bye. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.